0: My name is Dr. Howard Lyon, Senior Chair of the History Department at New Haven College. I'm also the best-selling biographer of Still Free, The Amazing Escape of Roman Polanski. Due to circumstances beyond my control, I find myself with a lot of free time on my hands. I decided to turn my biographical prowess to the fictional Cheersverse and write the definitive life story of Fraser Crane, using only the data provided by Cheers, Wings, and 11 seasons of his titular sitcom. In our last episode, we covered the tragic death of Hester, the happy weddings of the Crane Boys, and the birth of little Frederick. If you missed it, please go back and listen. I've put a lot of hours into this. I have a lot of hours, I haven't been outside for over a year. One time, I stepped too far out when I picked up an Uber Eats and almost got sent to jail. Needless to say, I left Dan a very bad review. We now enter a new decade, the 1990s. Much like myself, in 1990, Lila Sternen became a best-selling author. The manuscript she was working on before she met Fraser was finally complete. She called it Good Girls, Bad Boys, a thoroughly researched exploration about why good-hearted women find themselves drawn to men who are bad. It was another incredible feather in her cap, although the subject matter left Fraser feeling emasculated. Much like his own father, who in 1974 went through a midlife crisis, Fraser decided to dive headfirst into being a bad boy. He threw on a leather jacket and started hanging around with bikers. But his fling with the wild side didn't last long. He was soon back to his old stodgy self. Despite not being bad, Fraser's life was very exciting during this time. He met a number of famous and notable personalities, including Alex Trebek, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers, and Celtic's great Kevin McHale. Like Fraser, I've had many brushes with the glitterati myself, as my work often inspires celebrities to seek me out. After I published my glowing biography on Henry Kissinger, Jane Fonda showed up to my house and beat me up. I lost several teeth. Around this time, Fraser and Lilith received some difficult news. Per the results of a test, Frederick Crane only had an average intelligence. While this test ultimately proved incorrect, the two brainy parents were devastated. It didn't help when Frederick's first word was, Norm! The affable Cheers barfly was always a big part of Fraser's life, but from that moment on he became an important piece of Crane family lore. You see, a running gag in Cheers was that whenever Norm entered the room, everyone yelled, Norm! I assume most of you are familiar with this. It was a very popular sitcom, but if you didn't know about it, I'm truly envious of you. I long to remove all of this pop culture crap from my brain. If I could just snip it out, I would. I don't care what other motor functions go along with it. Yet another bundle of joy was born that year, who would soon become an essential part of the Crane Clan. All the way back in Seattle, a Jack Russell Terrier gave birth to a litter of puppies. One of those little creatures would later be adopted by Marty and named Eddie. He would go on to terrorize Fraser, but we'll get to all of that in due time. Things would take a significant turn in November of 1991. Marty Crane, almost 60 years old, was still putting in long hours as a plainclothes detective. On this November day in particular. He had lunch with his partner, Frank, and somehow ended up with a goldfish. He named it Eddie. Frank, Marty, and Fish Eddie ended up driving around Seattle while Marty unloaded his familial woes on his partner. Fraser was once again staying in Boston for Thanksgiving. This bothered Marty more than he let on. But Frank knew. They stopped at a convenience store like they had many times before. Marty didn't get anything, but Frank picked up a slushy. Before they left, Frank decided to go back inside. The frozen concoction wasn't to his liking. This decision brought him face to face with a man named Hicks, who was holding up the store with a thirty-eight Special. Frank got lucky. Marty Crane intervened. He stopped the robbery and saved Frank, but for this good deed... Marty took a bullet to the hip. As he lay bleeding out on the ground, the ever-stoic Marty didn't shed a tear. Same with my father. He was a Navy man through and through. I was with him, you know, when he had that last heart attack. He was just laying there, clutching his chest. I I, I didn't know what to expect. Certainly not him... Looking up to the sky and whispering, No just God would have let me live this long. Marty was taken to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, and Fraser left Boston right away to tend to his ailing father. Niles made sure to spend as much time as he could by Marty's side. But Marty was brusque with his son, almost cruel this moment of vulnerability showing a mean streak in the patriarch. He and his sons were different. They thought differently, looked at the world differently, lived differently. At that moment, it seemed almost impossible for the crane boys and their father to ever truly see eye to eye. I was quite taken aback by this scene, honestly. Not many... Frothy network sitcoms are willing to show how cruel the infirmed can be. Most shows like this would only portray a perfect victim. But in the real world, there are no perfect victims. Dylan McCurdy, for example. All of those doctors and nurses and my ex-wife doted on him after what I did, as if he didn't deserve every s- After the shooting, it became very clear that Marty would need help. The family briefly discussed having him move in with Niles and Maris, but the idea was quickly dropped. Marty and Maris simply didn't get along, so Marty returned home to his modest apartment alone. He was terrified. he never wanted to take a risk. he never left the house. He duck for cover every time a car backfired. Much like his physical injuries, the mental trauma of the shooting would take time and care to address. Marty's brush with death had a profound impact on his son's life as well. Fraser always had problems talking about death. He thought that if you talked about it, it would happen. Maybe this was because his father carried with him that grim possibility every time he went to work. But this shocking reminder of life's fragility must have encouraged Fraser, even briefly, to consider his own demise. After his father was shot, Fraser finally drew up a will, something he had been putting off for years. After his hip was shattered by an assailant's bullet, Marty Crane's life would never be the same. In Boston, his son's life was about to be shattered as well. The first crack came early in 1992. For his birthday, Lilith and Fraser took Frederick to see popular children's entertainer Nanny G. Nanny G was a bubbly performer who sang happy songs for children, grating little numbers all, But she did very well for herself, selling out performance halls all over the world. Frederick, like most little tykes his age, loved her music. But as Fraser watched the show, he realized he had seen this famous singer somewhere before. And realized it was his first wife, Nanette. Nanette, too, realized who this mystery man in the fourth row was. And the two shared a passionate kiss before the eyes of the entire crowd. Lilith was understandably upset. Not only did a rich and famous entertainer just kiss her husband, she had no idea that Fraser had been married before. Another landmark in 1992: Fraser Crane grew a beard. sad. A beard is the coward's mask. Of a weak man. He told his drinking buddies that he always wanted one, but Lilith never let him. She had somehow changed her mind. Curious behavior. Gentlemen, if your wife allows you to wear a beard, she no longer has skin in the game. She has thrown in the towel. Any woman who allows herself to be seen with a bearded man is telling the world, I'm ready to leave this sloppy has been any takers. And she's right to do so. Disgusting things. The truth was Lilith was starting to pull away from Fraser. While they seemed to be a happy family in public, they attended weddings. They shared the joyous news of Frederick's first steps. They even renewed their vows for their fifth anniversary. Things were not well in private. In April of ninety-two, Lilith began working on a study with renowned scientists. Dr. Louis Pascal. He was developing a subterranean dwelling called an ecopod, and Lilith was assisting him. She threw herself into this project and began to work late nights alone with Pascal. And while Lilith was getting her hands dirty with the ecopod, Fraser's career rounded a very important and ominous corner. He finally married two of his great loves, psychology and performing, when he developed the Crane Train to Mental Well-Being lecture tour and videocassette. This questionable turn for the decorated healer was marketed as a self-esteem lecture, where Fraser would provide such nuggets of wisdom as, if you can see it, you can be it. This unholy marriage of showmanship in pop psychiatry, would go on to become a defining part of Fraser's life. For now, it was but a fledgling tour that brought him to New York City and Nantucket. A sad and prophetic chapter in his life, and because of it, I had to suffer through a whole episode of Wings. Ugh, I still feel so dirty. After months of working besides Dr. Pascal, after being dragged around on Fraser's absurd lecture circuits, after learning her husband kept important secrets from her, Lilith dropped her guard. She allowed a latent attraction to her new colleague to surface, and the two had a steamy, one-time fling. Or so she thought. Before she knew it, Lilith was starting to fall in love with Pascal. And that meant the end of her relationship with Frasier. I'm not going to pretend I never had affairs. Of course I did. But Lilith's blunder was falling in love. I never did that. I never had a mental affair, which is the bad kind. You can have sex, and it's only physical. It can happen. It's no different than eating a sandwich. It's, It's just something for your body. Sheila didn't understand this, and in this backwards country, lawyers and judges don't either. We will end the episode here. I promised a doozy last time, and I delivered. You've heard enough now to know that I'm no Johnny come lately. When I say that something will be a can't-miss episode, I mean it. And the next episode is another can't-miss episode. Fraser's marriage falls apart, and he leaves the beauty of New England behind for the coffee swilling Sodom called Seattle. You're going to love it. This is Dr. Howard Lyon, and that's a wrap on this episode of The Fraser Files.
1: Thank you for listening to The Fraser Files. The Fraser Files was researched, written, and performed by Stephen Winchell and developed for audio by Stephen Winchell and Ian Abramson. Additional material by Grayson Davis. Directed by Lara Unnerstall, with audio recording and production by Adam Goron. Music by Stephen Winchell and Takuya Yoshida. If you enjoyed our program, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. You can find us on social media at Fraser Files, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Blue Sky. You can also send us an email at FraserFilesPod at gmail.com. Thank you again for exploring the rich world of Fraser Crane with us.